Good evening. Let's be turning in our Bibles to Revelation, the seventh chapter. Revelation, the seventh chapter, beginning in verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow or earth on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Please be seated. Thank you, Nat, for reading our scripture for us tonight. Thank you, Daniel, for leading us in our singing. Such a fine job. Thank you for that. Beautiful singing tonight. It's uh, so encouraging to hear the church sing about heaven. It's very encouraging to me. Happy that uh, Brother and Sister Ham have decided to place membership with us. We're happy that that announcement has been made, and we're very glad to have you a part of this family, the family at uh, the Broadway Church. And if there are those of you who've never obeyed the gospel, we encourage you to do that tonight. Or if you're looking for a, a home, a family, uh, be located with uh, the congregation here. We hope that you will do that this evening. Uh, we are involved in a Sunday night seminar. We have been for several weeks. Sunday night seminars are conducted just a little bit differently. I try to deal with different subjects that may not really be conducive to a sermon as such, but uh, we study the material and then try to make application of it and try to look a little deeper into the subject and what we might normally do. And we are we're uh, doing that tonight with chapter 7, the book of Revelation. If you do not have an outline, pre- please raise your hand, and one of these deacons uh, will, send, will get one to you. And we should have plenty, and so feel free to ask for an outline. As you'll notice, they have uh, the holes punched in the left-hand margin for you to keep in notebook fashion. I hope you'll do that or put them in a file folder and refer to them from time to time. There's far more information on the outline than I can present in the time that I have to be with you tonight. So I do encourage you to take the outline and and to read it carefully. If you'll notice in the introduction, and I'm not going to spend much time with this, I tried to give new introductory type material each time in the outline. I've been looking at the different approaches to the book Revelation. And in the outline that you have for you tonight, um, you have the... uh, the historical approach to the book of Revelation, and I hope you'll take a moment to consider some of those particular matters as they're very popular. This is a very popular approach and a method of interpretation. Very happy to have one of my good friends with us tonight, Brother Ivy Powell. Ivy, we're happy to have you, faithful gospel preacher from the uh, Rowlett Church of Christ, and he's with us this evening, and you'll remember Brother Powell. He's been with us in a number of our, well, both of our uh, forums, scriptural forums, uh, scripture forums that we've had uh, both last year and this year as well, and we're always grateful for his help and the help of others. What have we learned so far? You and I have seen Christ walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. 
And, of course, we see that it is a vision of the churches, the seven churches. Chapter 2 and 3, we studied very carefully about the churches, the seven churches of Asia. We've learned about great persecution that had come upon the church. If you look at the book of Revelation from the standpoint of the 90s, the late, the so-called late date, then you're going to see this as an empire-wide persecution, which I think is the better way to look at it. And in turn, you're going to have Domitian as the emperor at that time who brought about an empire-wide persecution upon the people of God. If you look at the early date in the 60s, then it's going to be more limited in the focus, and you're going to see Nero as the emperor at that particular time. You and I have spent just a little bit of time talking about the date. The date is consequential because the determining upon the date that you take for the book is going to be the outcome that you have for the interpretation of the book. And I think by far the more realistic approach would be the late date, though there are fine gospel preachers who take the early date. We saw how that the seven churches were addressed and then in chapter 4 and 5 was the throne room scene, how that John was allowed to look into heaven. And there he saw the uh, four and twenty elders on their thrones around the throne, separated by a crystal sea, with an emerald about uh, the head, an emerald rainbow about the head of the throne. And there the four living creatures. In that particular instance, one looked like a lion, one looked like an ox, one a man, and one eagle in flight. Special created beings, spiritual beings, doing the bid of God and the will of God. Then you remember that fantastic scene in chapter 5, how that uh, a book is in the right hand of God, and no one is worthy to open the book. It is sealed with seven seals. We're going to learn more about sealing tonight. And John begins to weep because there's no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth worthy to open the book and release the seals and the message of the seals. You see, the seals do a number of things. The seals protect the message. The seals guard the message. They authenticate the message. They show that it's genuine, that there's no tampering with the message. When they would seal the message or a document with a seal, it showed the genuineness of it, from whom it came. Well, here's a book, more accurately a scroll, but more modern translations translated as a book. The book has seven seals. Well, it shows the genuineness of the message. Seven seals, the complete revelation that God has in store for His churches, the seven churches of Asia and for every subsequent generation to live and to learn by it. It's protected. There's no tampering. And so John is very upset and he weeps bitterly because no one is worthy to unleash the books. And then an elder says, stop weeping. He said, there is the line of the tribe of Judah, uh, there is the, the root of David, he is worthy to release the seals of the book. And John says, I saw as it were a lamb standing that had been slain. And he took the book from the right hand of God. And all of heaven erupts in praise to God. And the four and twenty elders take their crowns of gold and throw them before the throne of God. And there the four beasts, the four living creatures worship and praise God. And all of the angels of glory are worshiping and praising God by the conclusion of chapter 5. In chapter 6, you have the opening of the first seal, and it is a white horse. 
And he has a crown and a bow in his hand. And we said that that represented the march of the gospel, how that the gospel was so successful in the first century period of time. But yet, it's not long after that, persecution arises and a red horse comes into the scene. And of course, this represents the persecution that the church was facing. Then there's a black horse with scales in his hands. A rider has scales in his hands showing the need and the want and scarcity of commodities, which often takes place, you see, upon the heels of severe persecution. And then an ashen horse or a pale horse. The original language conveys the idea of an ashen horse. It gives the idea of God's retribution on those who are taking out persecution upon the people of God. The fifth seal is the souls of those under the altar. And they have the martyrs cry, How long, O Lord, will it be before you avenge our blood on the face of the earth? God is telling them to wait a little while. And aren't we grateful that God is waiting before he brings all time to an end? And then there's the sixth seal, the terrible sixth seal, whereby it conveys the idea of God's destructive wrath upon the wicked and that their world really was coming to an end and they begged that the rocks and the mountains would fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of God, though there could be no protection from the wrath of God. And then the seventh chapter, which we begin with tonight. You know, you might expect the seventh seal to be opened tonight. But there's a pause in this action. This takes place again between the sixth and the seventh trumpet in chapter 10 and chapter 11. Some commentators call it an interlude, a parenthesis. Maybe they're right. I suppose they are, especially in light of the seventh chapter beginning, and this I saw, four angels standing. This is the Revelation's way of saying a new subject really is beginning. And this I saw really is a pretty good tip-off that another subject is taking place. And one might be really excited. Well, what about the seventh seal? Here's a book, seven-sealed book. We've had six seals that have been revealed. Six seals have been opened by the Lamb. And we've had the uh, revelation of what would come from each of the seals. But now there's a pause in the action this interlude, as the commentaries like to call it. I suppose that is right. Though one might draw the conclusion that this is just a continuation of the sixth seal. But I suspect that it is a parenthesis, an interlude. One would wonder, what in the world is going to happen next? And then this pause, an interlude. However you want to see this seventh chapter... You've got to be asking yourself the question, will all of this going on with the five, the six seals, God destroying the world and destroying the people of his day, the wickedness of their day, ultimately the wickedness of all mankind at the end of judgment, what's going to happen to the church? What about the church through all of this time? It would be a natural question, wouldn't it? What's going to happen to the church when you have all of this particular matter? And he says, oh, the church is going to be sealed. 
there's going to be 144,000 sealed. And then also in this chapter, the innumerable number that no one can number, that only God knows about. The one thing that you want to get out of chapter 7 is that God's going to take care of His church. God's going to take care of His people. Now, I don't believe that we have a chronological listing here of how the events are going to transpire. Because by the sixth seal, you have the destruction of the world. Destruction of the empire, for sure. So the opening of this particular chapter must refer to something prior to that. So don't be confused about any kind of chronological order here. He's not necessarily presenting it in chronological order. This happened first, and then this happened second, and then this happened after that. But what he's telling us in this regard is, in the midst of all of this, this parenthesis, this interlude, God's going to take care of his people. And even though physically they may die, still in heart and mind they belong to God. And God protects them. And he knows who they are. They are sealed. Now the seal we're going to learn about, once again, is a means of protection and identification. We use seals all the time. They just come in different forms. For instance, you might have something important, especially during this period of time of holiday gift giving, and you want to protect it. So you put it in the trunk of the car, and you put the lid down, and the car locks, the trunk locks. And before you can open it up, you have to have a key, and you open up the key, but you're protecting the parcel. You're protecting the, the property, the personal property that you've secured. That's what a seal is. And when we're going to learn about the sealing of the 144,000 tonight, God's protecting His people. He's sealing them. Just like the book that had seven seals that showed genuineness and authenticity and protected the message, God's going to protect His people. The question you need to understand tonight out of chapter 7, God will protect His people. They may lose their life. When we say God will protect His people out of chapter 7, does that mean that they'll somehow become fireproof or somehow become proof to the axe or the sword or proof to some have some protection against some kind of physical loss of life? No. But He is going to protect them. And He's going to help them. And nobody can take them out of the hand of God except they themselves. If they decide to fall away from the Word of God, they can fall away from the Word of God. But they'll have to do it themselves. Nobody can do it for them. Nothing is powerful enough to take them from the hand of God because they are sealed, the 144,000. And try as I might, there's not a lot of difference between the 144,000 and the innumerable number in heaven that John reveals for us tonight. It is the church of God in glory, taken to heaven, worshiping around the great white throne. Well, with this introduction in mind, let us notice very carefully. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Notice that the earth is the one that's going to be devastated here. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, which would be the east, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servant's of our God on their foreheads, verse 3. Now you understand what the sealing is all about. First of all is the sealing of the 144,000. 
The four angels stand upon the four corners of the earth. Does that mean the earth is flat? No, it does not. The earth is spherical, is in, is spherical in nature. We know that. We've seen that. We've gone around it. We circumnavigated the globe. Magellan was the first explorer to do that. We actually went into outer space and we flew around the earth. We know that the earth does not literally have four corners. He's speaking figuratively here. He's speaking figuratively of the totality of the power and sovereignty of God. That one cannot hide from God and that there's not a place where you can go to get away from the sovereign power of God and the decision of God. There are the four winds. Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind would blow on earth or sea or against any tree. God is holding them back. He's saying, do not turn loose your devastating force upon the earth yet. Do not do this, for we're holding back the devastation and the destruction. God knows when it'll be. He'll do it on time. He'll do it at the right time. But it's not time for it to be done yet. When you have ancient Christians who were suffering because of the persecution of Rome, God is telling them, I'm in control. It may see that Domitian, the red-headed Domitian, an evil emperor who's trying to bring suffering and trial and trying to do away with the church is in charge, but he's not in charge. God Almighty's in charge. And he's never relinquished his sovereignty over the universe. He says we're going to seal them. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I think of the 8th chapter of Romans when I think about this particular passage. Because it talks about the care and the keeping that we have with the hand of God. Notice the last portion of the 8th chapter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. To be more than conquerors simply means you're a super winner here, super victor, more than conquerors. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter about the emperors and the tyrants who rule. They cannot destroy the church of the living God. And how terrible the situation might have been for them. He says, you have been sealed, sealed by God himself. For Christ is the one who made all of these matters possible for us. And because of that, we come to understand something about the great love and care of God for our lives. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. It's the same word, servant, that is used in Revelation 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his what? Servants. The things that must soon take place. The servants of Revelation 1 verse 1 is the church the seven churches of Asia, and you and me tonight because we've been obedient to the gospel of Christ. Same words used in Revelation chapter 7. When you want to identify who the 144,000 are, you're looking at these particular men and women who've been obedient to the gospel. They are the servants of verse 3. 
They have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, most of the commentaries don't make much of that. But I think there's something to that, that the seal is on their forehead. A little later, in chapter 16, we're going to read about the seal of the beast and the mark of the beast, how that it is on their forehead and on their right hand. You see, they have a seal, the wicked, who live for the God of this world and for the emperor of this world. But the children of God have a seal, and the seal is on their forehead. It is there where their thought processes are, where their heart is. It's not that they have some kind of spiritual tattoo on their forehead, literally. But what he's saying there is that they have given themselves to God, and God has sealed them. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, this particular matter of the 144,000 has been so misunderstood because some people are involved in a literalizing of everything in the book of Revelation. They want to say that only 144,000 are going to be saved. The primary denominational cults that believe that are Seventh-day Adventists and also Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe only 144,000 are going to be saved. Jehovah's Witnesses have given up on that view because now there are more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses in the world. And so they decided we got to go back and rethink this thing, so they did. There are some people, some denominational people, who still hold on to that. Black Muslims believe that there are going to be 144,000 black men saved in heaven. There are a number of cults-type people that are still involved in this particular idea, literalizing the matter, literalizing it when it suits their means and then looking at it figuratively when it does not. Well, if it doesn't mean a literal 144,000, what does it mean? It means the church of the Lord, the servants that we read back in Revelation 1 verse 1. They are the servants that we read here in Revelation 7 verse 3. It is the church of Jesus Christ who are on the earth at any given time. They are sealed with the seal of God. The number 12, 144,000, is a multiple of 12. 12 is a numeral of perfection, completeness. You have leadership, completeness in the matter. 12 times 12 means absolutely the total. Then you add 1,000 to it, another number of completeness. Then you have the super complete number of all that are on the earth that have been obedient to the will of God. These people are the ones who are sealed by God at the time of their obedience to the gospel of Christ. It is not a literal 144,000. He goes through this area of the tribes, and he begins to count the different tribes, and um, he says, now there are 12,000 from this tribe going to be in the 144,000, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. And it's interesting how he begins to look at the tribes. The listing and the order of the listing is quite different from anything we've read in the pages of the Old Testament. And you look at these particular tribes and you think, well, now that reminds me of the Old Testament, and well, it should. But the listing that we have here is quite different. In fact, Dan is not even listed among the 12 tribes here. Joseph is listed. You'll remember Levi. Levi was not listed, but here he's listed in this particular counting of tribes. It was the tribe of Levi that the priest came from in the pages of the Old Testament. It's quite a different listing than what we would normally expect to see 
from an Old Testament listing of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now let's say if you wanted to take this just very literally, what the literalists try to do with this is this. Only 12,000 Jews from the tribe of Judah are going to be saved. But 12,000 Jews will be saved. 12,000 Jews from the tribe of Reuben Reuben are going to be saved. And 12,000 Jews from the tribe of Gad, they look upon it as Jews being saved. And only 12,000, not 12,001, not 11,999, but every one of these tribes literally, according to them, are going to be saved. You see, it doesn't follow. It doesn't follow with what we know from the pages of the Bible. All those who have been obedient to the gospel of Christ, they in turn will be saved. But he's not talking about Old Testament Israel being saved here. He's not talking about Jews being saved. He's talking about people who have been obedient to the gospel, the servants of Christ. Verse 3, Revelation 1, verse 1. They are the ones that are going to be saved. It is a complete number, a figurative number, showing all the saved that are on earth at that time. And it's quite an impressive number. He doesn't tell us just exactly, but he tells us in figurative language, the saved. But then, you get to the great multitude by verse 9. If only 144,000 people are going to be saved, as the literalists assert, then how do we handle this matter of such a great number in heaven that only God knows? After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. It's very clear that they are victorious. They're robed in white robes, and they have palm branches in their hands. They are in heaven. It is a great multitude. No one could number that multitude. It was so large in number. God knows who they are. God knows how many (coughs) there were, but He's the only one. No one else would be able to know. This is certainly part of God's divine plan from the very beginning. (coughs) In the Old Testament, He told us in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 13, chapter 15, that he planned to save uh, the world. Because Abraham obeyed the voice of God, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and the coming Savior would come through the lineage of Abraham. Here you have an innumerable number. All those who are obedient to the gospel of Christ, who are in heaven, are now being viewed. One is on earth. One is in heaven. The 144,000 are on the earth, sealed by the seal of God and with the seal of God. The great multitude that no one could number is in heaven. And there's not much difference between the two of them. What he's saying is, from the earth's perspective, God is going to seal and take care of those who are going through great tribulation. And yet here he says, in heaven, they're going to receive the blessings of eternal life. You have the church on earth, the 144,000. You have the church in, God, in heaven, in the hereafter, the great multitude that no one could number, but only God could know, robed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And here you have, in, in verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing round the throne, And around the elders and the four living creatures, those that we've already studied, 
And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from whence came they? And I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, when did they wash their robes? That's the question. When did those robes, when were they washed? Washed in the blood of the Lamb. They were washed in the blood of the Lamb when they obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Saul of Tarsus was told, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. And wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. When he did that, he was washed in the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, the Bible makes clear, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. See, he's washed us in that blood. But the question is when? When are those washed in the blood of the Lamb? When does that take place? That they may be counted as far as the 144,000 the church of the Lord on earth, and ultimately one day the innumerable number that no one could number save God alone. When they were obedient to the gospel of Christ, when they were washed in water for the remission of their sins, Acts chapter 2 verse 38, they were a new creation, Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, at that point it wasn't that they were washed and cleansed before, it wasn't that they became uh, washed in the blood of the Lamb sometime after. It was at the very point when that individual confesses his faith in Christ and repents of his sins and is immersed in water for the remission of sins. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. It is at that very point, that instant, in which the blood of Christ is applied to the soul of the sinner. In Romans chapter 6 verses 4 through 6. And he becomes the beneficiary of the benefits of the cross and all that that cross means. Now he receives the benefit of that. He becomes a part of the church of the New Testament on earth and one day a part of the great number, the innumerable number, which no one could number. But John says, now, who are these that are arrayed in white robes? These are the ones that have had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. And this elder says, these are they that have come through great tribulation. Now we're in heaven. Now wait a minute, wait a minute now, let's see. How's this supposed to go? I remember now. Jesus came and offered the Jews the kingdom, but they rejected it. And thereby plugged in the church as an emergency measure. Before he comes again to reign for a thousand years on earth, there will be the rapture tribulation period. Now, isn't that what we're told? And then the righteous will be raptured away and go up into heaven. 
and then the rest of us wicked guys are going to stay down here, and we're going to have to face great tribulation. Now, wait a minute. These, who are these people? Verse 14. Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Can you see the problem there? I do. Let me restate it another way so that we all understand. There is no rapture tribulation, period. There is no way in which Christ is going to come again and set up a liberal, literal throne in Jerusalem. The actual throne that David sat on in the days of the Old Testament, rebuild the Old Testament temple of Solomon, put that literal wood throne there in that throne room, and Jesus sit on that actual throne and reign from that spot for a thousand years. That's never taught in the pages of the Bible. But that is the basis of dispensational premillennialism, the most popular view of this particular passage. The 144,000, well, they're going to be raptured away. It's a secret rapture. That's the whole basis behind the Left Behind books. Have you been reading those? The Left Behind books, and there's also a movie out on this type of thing. In other words, uh, this commercial airliner is flying through the sky, and then all of a sudden... The pilot's gone. Now, where'd the pilot go? And then uh, some businessman is sitting in the seat there, and, and he uh, looks to the person next to him. That person's gone. Well, where'd that person go? Well, they hadn't figured it out yet. The rapture took place according to their view, you see. And then this taxi cab barreling down a busy street, a busy thoroughfare, all of a sudden, this taxi cab just out of control. It's just going all over the place because the cap, taxi cab driver was raptured and he's gone and now this cab is out of control. That's the basis behind the left behind books, that premillennial theory which says that the righteous will be raptured away to heaven. But John says the righteous went through great tribulation. The premillennial theory says that they'll be raptured out of it and only the wicked will go through tribulation on earth. But John says these are they that have gone through great tribulation and have had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. The premillennial theory is as false as it can be. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There is no rapture tribulation period. What he's talking about here is the persecution that the church would face and they would be sealed. Now, Jesus warned them that there would be great tribulation in Matthew chapter 24. If we took the time to study verses 21 through verse 29, we'd soon see Jesus warning about the matter of great tribulation that was coming upon the scenes in that day and time, that they were going to have to face that. But even though it would be a difficult life and facing difficult persecution, They've been sealed by God, and they belong to God, and God's going to protect them. And even though their life may be taken in the process, they would be going to heaven to be with God forever and ever. And to me, one of the most beautiful passages in the book begins, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He will sit on the throne. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. 
The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he'll guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful promise. How beautiful heaven must be. If you're studying Revelation chapter 7 like we are tonight, you've got to ask yourself the question, what's going to happen to the church through this difficult period of time, persecution, suffering, and loss? And God is saying, you belong to me. I have sealed you, and you are mine. And I'm going to take you to heaven to be with this innumerable multitude to worship and praise God. And it'll be such a place that we won't have the need for shelter. God, with a sweep of His omnipotent finger, will brush away the tear from a child's eye. There will be no heat there. There will be no need. God will supply all of our needs. I said this morning... You can talk about the streets of gold, walls of jasper, and gates of pearl. And that's a beautiful description. But I'd rather talk about seeing God face to face. To be with God. To be with Christ. To be a part of this innumerable number that will worship and praise God throughout eternity. Revelation chapter 7. And then we'll look at the opening of the seventh seal in chapter 8. Now I've made mention tonight how important it is to be a child of God. I hope you understand how vital that is. That the most important decision of your life will be the decision that you decide to become a Christian. To repent of your sins and to be baptized into Christ having confessed your faith in Jesus Christ. That'll be the most important decision you'll ever make. And then to live a faithful Christian life all of your life. How important that is. Studying the Bible, learning more about it. It's great that congregations of the Lord, like this beautiful congregation at Broadway, comes together on Sunday night to study about heaven and the beautiful things that God has in store for us. If you're not a child of God, surely you'll want to become one. And if you've been unfaithful, surely you'll want to repent because you can take yourself out of that number if through negligence and disobedience you decide to follow your will rather than the will of God. And if this invitation does not apply tonight, if for some reason everyone here tonight is a faithful child of God, then surely every one of us can go from this building stronger in faith, more determined to live for Him, more determined to tell other people about Him and what He's done for us when He died on that cross, paying the price for our sins, that our sins will be forgiven upon our faithful obedience to His will that we will be in that heavenly portal by His magnificent grace. That is the case tonight where you need to obey the gospel or if you need to repent. I urge you to do it now. 
Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?